Father, we do praise you. You are a great God. We know your plan is perfect. Sometimes we get sidetracked. Sometimes your plan throws us for a loop. (laughs) But we want to just follow you. This world is broken. It's hurting. Um, I want to pray for Gail right now, who just found out she has cancer. I ask that you would bring her total healing. Help her, Lord. Um, Just walk her through this, but bring her healing. Lord, today, we're going to look at this idea of yours called marriage. And it's an awesome idea. We just want to thank you for that. But Lord, teach us so that we can have just great marriages. So teach us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, look at Mark chapter 10, verses 1. Oh, yes, I forgot. Thank you, Jeff. There is a Bonneville, Pontiac Bonneville, out in the parking lot with their trunk open. If you want your trunk closed, we could, okay. That would be your son. Okay, just didn't know if you had the keys in the trunk, so we didn't want to shut the trunk. Uh, There we go. Okay, great. All right. So, um, thank you. (laughs) Where was I? Oh, yeah. God's plan. Now, on my PowerPoint, I really did put the page number, so I'm not sure why it doesn't list that. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Page number, not sure. Um, But if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring you one, and that's our gift to you. Uh, We're going through the Gospel of Mark. I put the page numbers from that Bible, so if you needed to know that, it's not going to help you today. I'm not sure why. Okay, so we're going through, and we're looking at God's original plan for marriage. I want to say this. Dean and Ronnie Wick, I really miss them. I I hope they're watching, you know, but they found a church in in Wisconsin. They moved to Wisconsin, you know, and and Dean, he's an architect, right? So they built this house, and if you're on Facebook, you probably watched the the house being built, right? You know Dean. He's an architect, and he's actually a really good one, too. So he had a blueprint for this thing, right? Y'all know, those of you who know Dean, you know he had a blueprint for this thing, right? Well, and that's why the house came out so well, okay? Now imagine if God gave us a blueprint for a fantastic marriage. He did. He did, okay? That's the great thing about it. Uh, By the way, I'm going to say several Bible verses. Don't even worry about writing them down. They're in your bulletin. They're on the uh, YouVersion, if you're doing this through your phone, YouVersion, or Harvest News. They're all on there, okay? Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Whole book of Song of Songs. Multiple Psalms and Proverbs. Malachi 2, 13 through 16. Matthew 19, 3 through 12. Our passage here. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 40. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. God has given us a blueprint for a great marriage, okay? Now, those of you who are married, sometime this week, Read those Bible verses together, okay? It'll be great, especially the Song of Songs. That's a great one. Okay. The problem is that our culture has abandoned God's blueprint for marriage and made their own drawing that doesn't work. 
The Pharisees also tried to distort God's plan. Let's read our passage. Mark chapter 10. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So let's look at what Jesus says about God's original plan for marriage, because you notice that's where Jesus goes. Let's go to the original plan. And what we see, first of all, verses 1 through 5, we, he answers the question, why did Moses permit divorce? It's quite interesting, because Moses did allow it. He permitted it. Why would he do that? Okay, well, as we look through these first five verses, we notice that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They've been trying to do this for a while, haven't they? They're trying to trap Jesus. Perhaps if they can get him to say, yeah, and that Herod, remember Herod divorced his wife in order to marry the the person that he's married to, and that's where John the Baptist, when he pointed it out, what happened to John the Baptist? lost his head. So they're probably thinking, if we could get him to say that, maybe he'll get killed too, okay? But no matter what, they're wanting to engage him in this controversy that was going on at the time. At the time of the first century, there were two different rabbinic schools of thought about what Moses was talking about when he permitted divorce uh, because of the wording of the Hebrew was unclear. Now, there were two schools. You had the Shammai school and the Hillel school, okay? The Hillel school, the, I remember them with the L's. They're the liberal, okay, L, liberal, okay? The Hillel school, uh, they believed that Moses allowed divorce for any reason whatsoever. If the wife burnt the toast, okay? Whereas the Shammai school were very strict. They said no, only if it was adultery. That that's what Moses meant. But Moses, his language was unclear, okay? So they're trying to trick him, but get him involved in this controversy. And his answer here is amazing. Uh, He asks them, well, what does Moses say? They say, Moses permitted us to write divorce and send her away. But Jesus said, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your heart. Here we see God's accommodation through progressive revelation. Now, let me explain what that means, okay? Look at Matthew 19, verse 8. Matthew's uh, rendition of this episode, he uh, makes it very clear. Matthew 19, verse 8. Jesus told them, 
Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. Moses allowed you to do this because of the hardness of your hearts, sclerosis of the heart. He allowed you to do this. And so here we see that God is accommodating through progressive revelation. He's allowing it for the time because of their sin, but he gradually will reveal his ultimate plan that we see with Jesus when he speaks here in just a moment, okay? So God allowed imperfection because of sin. Uh, It would take a lot to get through the thick hearts of these people. And that's why he even called the Jewish people stiff-necked people, okay? So it would take a lot, and God's gradually working and revealing. In the Bible, he gradually reveals more and more what his plan is. Number one, who is, who God is, and what is his plan to save us, okay? So it would take a lot uh, to get through the thick hearts and allowing the effects of sin is a part of the original curse. He's allowing them to, you know, go in this direction. But with Jesus, we have the full revelation of God. When Jesus comes on the scene, he's the full revelation. So it's, it's gradual. God's revealing more and more what his plan is and who God is. But with Jesus, we see the full revelation because Jesus is God and he is the plan of God, okay? Look at Hebrews chapter 12, uh, or chapter one, verses one through three, and we'll see this brought out, this idea of progressive revelation. Hebrews chapter one, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice here, in the Old Testament, he gradually revealed in various ways through the prophets, but now through his son, full revelation, because his son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, because Jesus is God, and he is the plan of God. So we see the full revelation in Christ. Uh, progressive revelation solves a lot of the difficulties that we see in uh, Old Testament interpretation. Have you ever struggled with some of the interpretations that you had of the Old Testament? It's sometimes a little confusing, isn't it? Okay, well, another help in that regard is the uh, uh, what they call hermeneutics. One of them is very, very important one. We want to discover what the original audience was saying to the what the original writer was saying to the original audience before we try to apply it to ourselves. Because we we need to get back into their shoes. What were they actually saying, not what do I think they were saying? Does that make sense? Okay. Problem with that, though, is sometimes we can't figure out what the original setting was. It is somewhat obscure sometimes. Top off that, Hebrew, the language itself, was actually fairly imprecise. 
So there was some difficulties. But once Jesus came, oh, it all becomes clear. And it actually illuminates what the Old Testament was saying. So we really need to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Jesus points them back before Moses, doesn't he? See, he says Moses allowed you to do that, but from the beginning of creation, I mean, I'm sorry, but verse five, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning of creation, God made them, and it goes on, and we see that he's pointing them back to the original intent of marriage. God's original plan is the best plan. Duh. <laughs> right? God's original plan is the best plan. I have a book. It's called The Case for Marriage. And uh, this book uh, reveals the statistics after massive surveying and reveals that married couples, okay, as opposed to couples who are just cohabitating together, married couples are happier, healthier, and better off financially than cohabitation couples. Both husbands and wives are more sexually fulfilled than cohabitation couples. Uh, and by the way, it also reveals that sex before marriage does hurt the couple. And those are all just simply facts because God's original plan works. That's what we see here, but that's our world is rebelling against that original plan. His original plan is found in Genesis chapter 2. Look at this, okay? Genesis chapter 2. I want to read at least a couple verses from here, okay? So Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, but we'll, uh, let's just read uh, 18, verse 18 here. That'll, that'll be good. He says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Now notice there, if you remember Genesis chapter one, God's creating everything and it says, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. Here's the first time where it says, it's not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Now, those two words are really important, okay? The word helper is uh, ezer, and it just means helper, but it means, it doesn't imply any inferiority. Some people think, oh, that means, you know, back then they used to think women were inferior to men. It's not true, okay? It has no implications of inferiority at all because God is also called our ezer, our helper, so there's no inferiority implied here at all. But it's the second word, okay, corresponding to him. The NIV says suitable for him. ESV, fit for him. New King James, comparable to him. HCSB, as his complement. And you see, well, what's going on here? What is it talking about? Why is it uh, translated so differently? The, the Hebrew word is neged. Now, neged sometimes means in front of, and sometimes it means opposite of, okay? But opposite of as a good completion to, like the two poles of the earth. Opposite but completion of. 
That's what he's referring to here. God's original plan was a man and a woman, opposite but completion. They complete one another. That's his plan. That's his original plan. He goes on. Adam tries to find, you know, he's naming all the animals, and he finally finds the woman, and he's amazed, of course. And uh, it says, verse 23, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. Here this word bonds, davak is the Hebrew word. It means to cling. It's like a glue, but it's also in a covenant. This is covenant language. So marriage is a bonding to in a covenant of marriage. All right, so that's his original plan. It's a, it's a great plan. Why would we want to improve on it? Now, back to Jesus' words in verse 5, he says, but this Mark chapter 10, verse 5, but Jesus told them he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Okay, he's quoting Genesis chapter 1, I think it's verse 27. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He's referring back to that passage in Genesis chapter 2, right? And he's saying this was God's original plan. And notice the things that he brings out specifically, okay? Gender was God's idea. He originally made them male and female. Now, our society has completely rejected that, and they've embraced this uh, idea that gender is a social construct, and it's on a spectrum and, and so forth, but that is simply not true according to the Bible. If you believe the Bible is God's word, then you have to reject that idea and see that no gender is God's idea, and it's actually a good idea. Today, we have the transgender or uh, what's called the gender dysphoria, and I believe that that's an example of the brokenness that has taken place because of Genesis 3 with the fall. The fall brought about a brokenness in the world. Now, we do not want to beat people up who are struggling with their gender, all right? Because all of us are broken in various ways, aren't we? So we don't, we're not beating each other up. That's not it at all. Uh, but we also don't want to advocate the brokenness. Imagine if someone, they're broken, and so they, they cut, we want to help them. We don't want to beat them up, right? But we certainly don't want to say, it's okay, go ahead and cut. We wouldn't do that, would we? We don't advocate the brokenness, but we do care for the people who are broken. And so we see that this is a problem, this is a, a point of brokenness that we want to help with. Um, the, uh, let me read from... Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. This is a fantastic 
book. Uh, she brings out this, uh, she talks about transgender issues and other, other issues. But let me, I want to read a, a little bit of what she says about this because this is really right at home right now what's going on in our society. She says, many people find it easy to recognize the two-story dualism in the transgender narrative. A BBC film titled Transgender Kids says at the heart of the debate about transgender children is the idea that your brain can be at war with your body. Today, the accepted treatment is not to help persons change their inner feelings of gender identity to match their body, but to change their body through hormones and surgery to match their feelings. In other words, when a person senses a dissonance between body and mind, the mind wins, the body is dismissed as irrelevant. So it's really a, an attack on the body. This low view of the body can be detected in the language used in SOGI laws and policies. Uh, SOGI laws are the laws that they're beginning to make uh, for um, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity laws of the land. Here is a typical example from the California Education Code. Gender is a person's gender identity and gender-related appearance and behavior, whether or not stereotypically associated with the person's assigned sex at birth. What's the operative word here? Assigned. As though a person's sex at birth were arbitrary instead of a biological fact. The Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, GLAD, says transgender is a term used to describe people whose gender identity differs from the sex the doctor marked on their birth certificate. A person pictures the doctor wondering, hmm, which sex shall we mark down for this baby, instead of observing it as a scientific fact. What this language implies is that scientific facts do not matter. Soji laws are being used to impose a two-level worldview that disparages the physical body as inconsequential, insignificant, and irrelevant to who we are. Uh, goes on and, and says some other things that are, you know, an excellent book here, but you see the problem, okay? Now, uh, did want to read one other section, how this fits our... That's right now. Every social practice is the expression of fundamental assumptions about what it means to be human. When a society accepts, endorses, and approves the practice, it implicitly commits itself to the accompanying worldview, and all the more so if those practices are enshrined in law. The law functions as a teacher educating people on what society considers to be morally acceptable. If America accepts abortion, euthanasia, gender-free marriage, and transgender policies. In the process, it will absorb the worldview that justifies those practices, a two-story fragmentation of the human being that denigrates the body and biological bonds such as the family, and the dehumanizing consequences will reach into every aspect of our communal life. That's how serious this is. The SOGI laws, uh, we do know that one of the candidates that's running for election right now has already said he will enforce the SOGI laws on the whole land. And the Supreme Court justices have already said this will eventually 
affect even churches. It will certainly wipe out all Christian schools that won't be allowed to exist anymore. That is something that we need to be aware of right now. This is where we're at. This is where we're at. And Jesus is addressing it. He's saying God's original plan included gender. One man, one woman. And one man, one woman for life was God's plan. Made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, God, what God has joined together, let no one separate. One man and one woman for life was God's plan. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 26. We see in the New Testament, the idea of homosexuality is addressed and seen as an aberration. Verse 26, it says, For this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received their own, in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Now what we see here is that he, Paul actually uh, addresses natural law. He says natural law. It's unnatural. They don't fit the design. God's design was a man and a woman. They don't fit the design. But he also speaks of how uh, God's design, it doesn't fit God's design. God's design was for one man, one woman. And it also says that two men or two women... It addresses both, right? It says that that is actually a, a, process, a product of human corruption. It's because of the fall again. The fall has wrecked the world, and this is where people are at now. Now, some have tried to uh, explain away these passages. If you uh, are interested, Robert Gagnon, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics, an, an incredibly detailed book on all of these texts, that reveals that there's no other way to understand it than the obvious way that it, it was as we just read it, okay? So here we see that God's plan, one man, one woman for life, and that it's a great plan. Jerry Vines, uh, he says, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. In other words, when God created human beings, he made a distinction between the sexes. Male and female created he them. I believe that men and women are different, not only physically, but also psychologically and spiritually. Does that mean the man is superior? Of course not. Does that mean the woman is inferior? Of course not. A man is infinitely superior to a woman at being a man. A woman is infinitely superior to a man at being a woman. Vive la différence, okay? And that's what we see. This is God's plan, and it's a great plan because he goes on to say, and the two will become one flesh. Oneness is the result of the covenant of marriage, 
Okay, now oneness needs to be understood in three ways. There's spirit oneness, soul oneness, and physical or body oneness. And the first and most important is spirit oneness, okay? That's where the two individuals know Christ, and as the, when they get married, they're still working on their relationship with Christ. They're putting Jesus first above their spouse. And as they seek the Lord, they actually get closer to each other, don't they? That's God's plan. Spirit oneness, where you're both focusing on Christ first, and you will then, then that develops your oneness. Now, because Jesus, God, he fulfills all of our greatest needs. Two major needs that every single human being has is a need for security and a need for significance. Every single human has those needs, and the world is constantly trying to rob us of those things, security or significance. Now, as we seek to gain those from God, not primarily from our spouse, but from God, security. If you know Christ, if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation, you've outwardly expressed that in baptism. The Bible says you're born again. You're his creature. And Jesus promises, he says this, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's his promise. And that is an incredible promise. That is security no matter what happens. COVID, who cares? You know, financial devastation, oh well. You know, physical body, bad stuff happens. And I'm not making light of those things. Those things can be very, very tragic. But you can make it through it with God, can't you? With him, it's like, he's got me covered. And even if I die, what happens? I go to heaven. It's not that bad. Okay, so you see this, the security is like, okay, I can live for Christ because I have security, but also significance. I am absolutely special to God. You are, each and every single one of you are absolutely special to God. You know how you determine the worth of something to somebody? It's how much the person is willing to pay for it. That's how you discover the worth of something to somebody. You know how much you are worth to God? What was he willing to pay? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. That's how significant you are. And he has a plan that only you can fulfill. Absolutely nobody else on the planet can fulfill it. He has a plan. You, look, you read 1 Corinthians 12. You'll see all this, okay? And many, many other places. Ephesians 4, etc. Or, yeah, 4. And so we see these things. God has a special plan just for you. You are absolutely significant. So my security, my significance, it comes directly from God. So that's the spirit oneness. I put that first. And then second, soul oneness. That's husband and wife. The soul's bonding together, okay, where you are actually helping each other feel secure and significant, right? Now, we blow it sometimes. That's where God has to be first. But we do that, and we help each other, and we're there for each other. We meet each other's needs. And then the physical oneness, obviously referring to the sexual relation, uh, is, is the best because of that. You see this, this plan of God's? 
Is it good? It's, it's awesome. It's wonderful. That's what we see here. Marriage is a great idea. Uh, Daniel Aiken, he says, marriage is a good gift from a great God to be enjoyed. Sex is a part of this good gift. God's design is one man for one woman for a lifetime until separated, unless separated by death. Marriage is the joining of two bodies, two wills, two minds, and two sets of God-given emotions. Marriage is sacred because it reflects the spiritual union of Christ and his church, Ephesians chapter 5. As Jesus would never divorce his bride, a spouse should never divorce his or her mate. The ultimate meaning of marriage is the representation of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. And so we see this idea of God called marriage. And he ends by showing that divorce is not God's idea. Now, before I move into this section, I do want to say I'm not bringing this up to beat anybody up. I know there are people in our church who've been divorced, and that's not the point of this. But I want us to see God's original intention and what God says about this. We have to deal with the passage. He says, verse 10, when they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Adultery is a grave sin. It's the seventh commandment. It hurts everyone involved, especially the kids. I'm a product of a divorced parent's it really hurt me, and I know other kids. It especially affects them. I'm going to read you a poem from a kid called The Monster. The monster's here. The mon- Doesn't it ever think of me? Mom's here. Dad's there, and I'm just not anywhere. How can I say this without any force? The monster is called Divorce. And you can feel the child's pain. Now, there are two biblical exceptions to the divorce rule found in Matthew 19, 9, adultery, and 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16, abandonment. And I also want to say, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. If you've gone through a divorce and you've repented of your sins and you've asked God to forgive you, He does. He forgives, he restores, he changes, he heals, etc. Okay, so at Harvest, we encourage reconciliation, but we do not judge people who have had a divorce. Uh, We want to help people heal from divorce with no condemnation, but we also must see God's original intent and his plan. I know a couple, I'm not going to mention their names. Well, I've known them for years and years and years. And I remember early on, this couple, I'm telling you what, I've heard a lot of stories as a pastor. This couple took the cake, absolutely. I guarantee you, none of you have an instance as bad as this one, okay? And yet, they came to us and asked for help. 
And we counseled them, Elizabeth and I. We really didn't didn't think they were going to make it. I thought, wow, no way, man. But then we even began to have faith. Yes, God can do anything. And they made it. And years and years later, I would say one of the happiest couples I know. God can restore, heal, change. My marriage, Elizabeth and I, have had our bumps in the road. But we've always come out stronger because of our commitment to our covenant of love with each other. And I'm here to testify that God's original plan cannot be improved on. Let's pray.